0: The Corum Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, Biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading is Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, Bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, we're going to turn our attention now to God's word. And uh, I want to give you a sense of where we're headed this spring. Starting next month, in the month of February, we will begin a series in the book of Genesis. And specifically, Genesis 37 through 50, which is the story of the life of Joseph. Uh, We preached the life of Abraham a couple of years ago, an earlier section of Genesis. And so we're going to engage the story of Joseph this spring, from February until the beginning of the summer. And uh, so you can begin uh, reading that narrative in Scripture if you want to. One of the reasons I really love the story of Joseph is because it's such a powerful story. It has all the elements that I think we... Um, love to see in a a good story, all the things that sort of make it really powerful and compelling. Um, There are twists and turns and ups and downs. Joseph himself is a very complex character. Uh, He's both a hero and a villain in certain ways as we go throughout the story. Um, And really, it's a story of the the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God in the work that he's doing to redeem his people. And so, um, as I was thinking about that, it got me thinking that... um, Every one of us here this morning is story-formed, right? Like when you come to church on a Sunday, you bring your story with you. Um, You are here in the middle of a story that's being written. Uh, There's much that lies behind you, many things that have already taken place in your life. There's some parts of the story that lie yet out in front of you, but every one of us has been shaped by the story that we're living in. That's just the reality of what it means to be human. And so we bring our stories with us as we come before God. And one of the challenging things to think about is how we don't live out of our story, but how we learn to live in light of God's story. Because all of us, the the natural ways, the default ways we tend to live are just shaped by the story that we've already had to this point. And part of what God wants for us is to see that story caught up into the greater story, the bigger story, the more glorious story of what he's doing to redeem the world in and through Jesus Christ. Um, as I was thinking about my own story and you know, the story that I bring into this room, uh, my story, by God's grace, I, I grew up in a Christian family uh, where God was feared and honored. My mom and dad are here this morning and they're among us. Usually they're part of this church. And um, so they raised me in a home where the scriptures were just sort of part of life. And what that meant for me, and you've had this experience in in a different way maybe depending on the context you've grown up in, but what that looks like is it means I didn't like um, take a Bible class at five years old. Like I didn't go to seminary to learn how to work my way through the Bible. What it meant was I was just immersed in the stories of the Bible and the language of the Bible and the symbols and the images of the Bible because that was just what our family was kind of about. And as I grew up, I learned to sort of, make sense of those things. Like it started with just being immersed in the story. And then out of that, I started to make sense and ask questions about, well, how does this part of that story relate to this other part? And here's some questions I have from reading the Bible that don't entirely make sense to me. And that's how I sort of came to understand the story of the Bible, was just by being immersed in it. And then by sort of growing up enough to start asking questions about it. Actually, that's true of all language acquisition, isn't it? Like, um, however you learned the language that's your primary language, it didn't come through taking a class. It came through just, you got thrown into a family that spoke a language, and so you just grew up surrounded by words and images and stories, and, and you gradually began to learn how to use that language, how to put words together. How to put sentences together, how to make sounds, and how it all fit, and what the little colloquial phrases and slang were. Anytime you go to a foreign country uh, where you're a native speaker of English and someone else maybe is trying to learn and become more fluent in English, one of the things they always want to know is, hey, tell me some slang phrases. Because like, they want to know, how do you guys speak really? Like, not just a textbook English, but like, if I was there, how would I just sort of like talk like people talk? And if you've learned a foreign language, the same is true, right? There's little colloquial phrases that you just need to know to sound like and feel like a fluent speaker. So what's interesting about the Bible is, regardless of whether your story was like mine or quite different from mine, all of us actually come to the Bible that same way. Like when you come to faith in Jesus, this becomes your story. Like here's your book. Here's the story of your people. You're in it now. And you might not even understand it all. You might have questions about how it fits together. It might be totally foreign to you. But when you come to faith in Jesus, this now becomes your story. And so you sort of start with what's there and you begin to sort of try to make sense of it together, right? Um, it, it, it becomes familiar to you as you read it and as you sing it and as you pray it and as you talk about it and as you study it, this word in this story of scripture sort of starts to make sense to you and you start to make sense of what it means. My job as a pastor, in part, is to help you become fluent in this book and in this story, to help this become more familiar to you, to help your life be more shaped by it. And so for the next three weeks, I want to do a deep dive into one word and one concept That's central to the Bible's storyline, and it's that word that you see there on the screen, the word righteousness. Actually, the word is on there. Oh, you just gave it away. The word is on there twice. That background word is the Hebrew text for the word righteousness, and that is how you pronounce the Hebrew term. So you're going to learn some Hebrew this morning. We're going to say this together like we're infants learning to talk, all right? So the Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah. The emphasis is on the first syllable, tzedakah. So I want you to listen to me say it one more time, and then I'm going to make you say it together, all right? Tzedakah. Tzedakah. Okay, so that's, no, that's T-S, not just S. Some of you guys said tzedakah, which I don't know what that is. It's probably a drug, but this is tzedakah, all right? So the Hebrew tzedhe is like a T and an S put together. So now you know how to speak some Hebrew. By the way, Hebrew is written backwards. It reads... Right to left, not left to right. So the beginning of the word is over there, and the end of the word is over there. And if you didn't know that, now you know why, man, Hebrew is a challenging language to learn, because the whole thing is backwards, at least to us who speak the language that we do. But this word and its Greek equivalent appear over 500 times in the Bible. So this is a major concept. This is a major idea in Scripture. And here's what I want to explore. What does it mean? What does it mean when the Bible tells us that God is righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? Why is it good news that God is righteous? I think this is one of those words that because it's so familiar in the Bible, we know it. Like we know that it's a biblical word. We kind of know a little bit about what it might mean. But we, we end up using it without a real clear sense of what is this idea of righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean that God is righteous? So here's what I want to do over the next few weeks is just sort of take a deep dive into that idea and hopefully help us come out more fluent, more conversant, more shaped by this biblical reality. And the method we're going to use is sort of a survey of Scripture rather than just one text. And so we will end up this morning in Psalm 143, which you just heard read. But on the way there, we're going to stop off in a lot of different places in the Bible to explore this idea of righteousness, and and to hear what the Bible has to say about it, all right? So let's start the way a brand new reader of the Bible would start. Some of you who are newer Christians who have just begun reading the Bible, here's what's happened. You opened the Bible and you began reading and you came across some verses that use this word, and that's kind of how I want to start this morning. Let's just look at some of the places where the scriptures give the assertion that God is righteous. Righteous. I'm going to have these verses on the screen for you, so you can just travel along through the Bible and see what it says about this word. Psalm 145, verse 17, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Psalm 11, verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice, Zephaniah 3, verse 5. And then the passage we read in our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. So the Bible begins not by explaining righteousness to us, but by just telling us over and over again, God is righteous. Not only do we learn that God is righteous from the Bible, We also learn that people can be righteous too. So we come across verses like these. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Genesis 6, verse 9. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Proverbs 15, 29. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Psalm 7, verse 8. So we see that God is righteous. We see that people can be righteous. And at the same time, we come across verses like these. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Or Psalm 143, verse 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. So we have the Scriptures telling us that people are righteous, and also the Scriptures telling us that no one living is righteous. And any time you come across that kind of attention in Scripture, it's an invitation to be a better and more thoughtful reader. What bad biblical study does is say, well, those things contradict, I guess neither one is true. What good biblical study does is to say, okay, there's something here that requires attention and study and insight. God is saying something more deep about righteousness than maybe it appears on the surface. And so it should awaken curiosity and interest and studiousness for us as Bible readers. But even in that small sampling of verses we just looked at, we start to pick up some clues to what righteousness is. We see that it's connected to things like integrity and being blameless. We see that it's contrasted with things like wickedness and injustice. In other words, righteousness is a moral, ethical term. It's a term that has to do with what's right and just and good. And that creates some immediate challenge for us because no place is our modern world more divided than over the question of what is right. We live in a society full of competing claims about what's right and good. And one of the philosophers who's thought a great deal about our modern challenge in this area is a man named Alastair McIntyre. He is Scottish, and he's now in his 90s, I think, still on the faculty at Notre Dame. Forty years ago, he wrote a book called After Virtue, exploring the problem of moral discourse in the modern world. And in the book, he asks us to imagine two different people making assertions about what is right. He wants to introduce you to two different people making two different claims about what is right and good in society. So here's person A. Everybody has certain rights over his or her own person, including his or her own body. It follows from the nature of these rights that at the stage when an embryo is essentially part of the mother's body, the mother has a right to make her own uncoerced decision on whether she will have an abortion or not. Therefore, abortion is morally permissible and ought to be allowed by law. That's one assertion that's often made in our culture. Then McIntyre asked us to hear another assertion. Here's, this, here's person B, murder is wrong. Murder is the taking of an innocent human life. An embryo is an identifiable individual differing, differing from a newborn infant only by being at an earlier stage on the long road to adult capacities. If infanticide is murder as it is, abortion is murder. So abortion is not only morally wrong, but ought to be legally prohibited. The point Alistair McIntyre wants you to see is that these are both statements about what is right and just and good and proper. And the problem, according to McIntyre, is that our society has lost the ability to decide who is right, to pick one or the other. Part of our society agrees with person A. Another part of our society agrees with person B. And that's kind of where we stand. And the reason we are stuck here, according to McIntyre, is that as a society, as a culture, we've bought into a point of view called emotivism. Here's his description of emotivism. Emotivism is the doctrine that all moral judgments... Are nothing but expressions of preference or feeling. All moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference or feeling. In other words, to say that's wrong is just another way of saying I don't like that. Emotivism says there's no ultimate standard of righteousness beyond us, there's no right and wrong authoritatively in the universe, there are only our own feelings about what's right and what's wrong. And that explains by when it, why many of our modern moral disagreements seem so unresolvable. Because we've abandoned any sense of an objective standard for determining right and wrong. There's no higher court for us to appeal to. There's no objective standard by which we can determine what's right and wrong, but here's what you'll notice. Despite the fact that by and large, Our culture no longer believes in an objective moral order. We still count people as either righteous or unrighteous. Though we've abandoned the idea of objective morality, we are still very moral in how we think about one another. To the pro-abortion crowd, those who support abortion are righteous. Those who oppose it are unrighteous. To the Trump loyalists, so I can be an equal opportunity offender. Those who support Donald J. Trump are righteous, and those who oppose him are unrighteous. To the environmentalists, supporting green energy is righteous, supporting fossil fuels is unrighteous, right? You see how we do this. No matter where you fall on the social and political spectrum, you make judgments about who is righteous or who is in the right, and who is in the wrong or who is unrighteous, and you can't avoid doing that. That sense of righteousness is hardwired into human beings. And that's true whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic or anything else. Now, can't you see that if our standard for righteousness is based on preferences, if what's right just comes down to what the majority of people prefer, then what that means is what's wrong today could be right tomorrow, and what's right today could be wrong tomorrow if public opinion changes. And isn't this how we've sort of decided to measure what's right and wrong in our side? Just take a poll. What do the majority of people think? Hey, 51% of people think X. What a fickle standard for judging right and wrong. I mean, listen, can you just do a little bit of history and figure out that doesn't go very well? Like that's not a good standard for determining what human beings ought and ought not to do. Aren't you glad we can say that the Holocaust was wrong, even though 51% of German citizens may have agreed with it? Aren't you glad we can say that lobotomies are not a good medical practice, even though 51% of psychiatrists years ago agreed that they were a useful intervention? I mean, it's really good that we don't determine right and wrong just based on a poll. Because the evidence of history is that's a terrible way to determine what's right and wrong, and it leads to all kinds of evil and suffering. This is why God's righteousness matters so much. Because if there is no righteous God who sets the standard with what's right and wrong, then then we're left with just the tyranny of the majority. Which is great if you're in the majority, and terrible if you're in the minority. The good news the Scripture proclaims to us is that God is righteous, and that because God is righteous, right and wrong are not merely preferences. There is an objective standard of goodness that is not cultural, and it's not fluid, and it's not up for a vote. And that standard is God Himself. When the Bible tells us that God is righteous, it's telling us God himself is the standard of what is right and wrong. He doesn't conform to some higher standard. He is the standard. He is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. And friends, that's good news that such a standard exists because otherwise it's the war of all against all. Now, let's go a little deeper into the idea. What is righteousness? How should we understand this idea? Granted that the Bible says God is righteous, what does that mean? Here's how Herman Bovink describes it or defines it. Righteousness is the justice which a person himself possesses and the just action which he does in relation to others. The justice which a person possesses and the just action he does in relation to others. Notice the connection between righteousness And justice. These two ideas are always brought together in the scriptures. We hear a lot about justice these days, don't we? Everybody wants to talk about all kinds of justice social justice, economic justice, environmental justice, racial justice. Justice is good, but here's the problem if you don't have righteousness, then you can't have justice. Justice only exists if there's a standard for what's right and wrong, because justice is making correct judgments about what is good and what is evil. What should be tolerated and what should be forbidden? What should be honored and what should be dishonored? The Bible never talks about justice without linking it to righteousness. And so what it means that God is righteous is that he is just, that he always does what is right, and that he himself is the standard of what is right. Listen to some famous verses that link these two. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 89 verse 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 103, verse 6. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, Amos 5:24. I have laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. The Bible always holds together righteousness and justice because you can't have one without the other. And so here's what that means. Anytime people want to talk about justice and they don't want to talk about righteousness, you get to not listen because you can't have one without the other. They go together. Yes, we want justice in the world, and that justice is determined by the righteousness of God and what God demands and requires of human beings. That's how it works. That's how it fits together. Now, You saw in this text from Isaiah, a picture an analogy that I think is really helpful for us in thinking about righteousness. This past year, uh, and it took me a whole year, I remodeled my basement, did most of the work myself. It turned out awesome. You guys are all welcome to come over and walk through if you want to, it's great. I just got it done a few weeks ago. Uh, One of the tools I used was a plumb line. I showed this in the first service. Some guy was like, literally they don't have anything more technologically advanced than that. Like, that's what you use to remodel your basement? I was a little offended. Let me explain why this is an important tool, all right? Um, Because when you're setting a wall, building a wall, framing something, you want it to be straight. And so the question is, what's the standard that determines whether a wall is straight or crooked? The answer is the standard is gravity. Gravity determines whether a wall is straight or crooked. And so this is a centuries-old tool to determine, using gravity, a straight line. Now, of course, you can go buy a $500 laser that's cooler. This is $5, and I like to save money, all right? So using this, you can determine, is this wall straight or is it crooked? In construction, gravity is the standard. The Old Testament prophets use this as a metaphor for righteousness. They, they say that God's righteousness is like a plumb line. You saw that in Isaiah 28. God saying, I'm going to bring the plumb line of my righteousness against Samaria. God holds the plumb line of his righteousness up against your life. And when he does, here's what it reveals. It reveals the places in your life that are in line with justice and righteousness and the places that aren't. It reveals the places in his people that are in line with righteousness and justice and the places that aren't. Here's why this is good news. It means the standard is the same for everyone. The most basic principle of justice is, are we using the same standard for everyone? Or do some people get a shortcut? Do some people get a pass? Do some people get overlooked? The good news, friends, about the righteousness of God is it means he applies the same standard to everyone. And listen, this sets the God of the Bible apart in dramatic ways from every other God in the ancient Near East. Again, if you're familiar with the narrative of the Bible, you don't have to know history to know this. You can know this even when you're just reading the scriptures. Every people group in the ancient Near East had their own set of God's. The Moabites had their gods, the Ammonites had their gods, the Babylonians had their gods, the Assyrians, the Philistines. Everybody had their own set of gods. Every culture, every nation had their preferred deities. And the job of your God was to be on your side. So when they go to battle, they prayed, said, God be on our side, help us have victory against our enemies. When they want agricultural production, they said, Gods favor our land and our uh, waters and so forth. All these cultures had their own deities, and the job of the tribal deity was be on the side of the tribe. And then we encounter this God of the Israelites, this God of the Hebrews, this God called Yahweh in the Scriptures, who's totally different. And the way he's totally different is this. He's only on the side of his people when they are on the side of righteousness. He's the only God in the history of the ancient Near East who enters into judgment with his own people. Who sets himself apart from his people and says, because you are unrighteous, I'm now going to judge you. My righteousness is coming against you. I'm taking and holding you account for your unrighteousness. He holds the plumb line up to his own people and says, because you're Life, your conduct, your society is out of accord with righteousness. My judgment is coming against you. This is why God is good and wonderful. is because he holds everyone to the same standard, including his own people. And so when we study the righteousness of God in the scriptures, here's what we discover. The righteousness of God is a threat to his people. And the righteousness of God is the hope of his people. The righteousness of God is a threat to his people and it's the hope of his people. Look at both these themes in scripture with me. First of all, listen to what God says to his own people. There are many scriptures we could have gone to here. I just want to take one of them in the prophet Micah. You'll see it on the screen. Micah chapter three, God says, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, and make crooked all that is straight. See that plumb line idea again. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, "Is not the Lord in the midst of us. No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. What God is saying to his people is, in light of your unrighteousness, my righteousness is coming against you. I'm going to give you over to your enemies. I'm going to make Jerusalem your favored city, a heap of ruins. And God's going to do that because he is righteous. God's righteousness is a threat to his people. His righteousness exposes their sin, their corruption, their wickedness, their selfishness. His righteousness exposes all the ways that they do not measure up to his standard. And listen, that's why coming to church can be uncomfortable. If you're wondering, like, why is coming to church sometimes kind of uncomfortable? This is why, and you're not alone in this. It's been the case throughout human history, right? We say often here, hey, we want to welcome you here. You're welcome here no matter where you find yourself. Like, No matter where you are in your journey, you're welcome here. And socially speaking, I want that to be the case. I pray that is the case. We work hard to make that the case where no one's an outsider. And yet at the same time, it's not crazy if sometimes when you come to church, you're like, yeah, it feels a little uncomfortable in here. The reason is because of who it is that we're talking about here and what that God that we worship is like. Like if God is righteous, there's gonna be moments where you probably don't feel super comfortable because his righteousness is coming to bear on some area of your life that needs reform, repentance, change, transformation. And so what that means is, sometimes when you come to church it's like, yeah, it feels a little hot in here right now, <laughs> right? That's good and normal. When we come into the presence of a righteous God, we, of course, should feel a little bit exposed. We should feel the conviction of sin. We should be aware of our shortcomings and weaknesses and frailty and foolishness. Because God's righteousness is a threat to sinful people, our temptation is to shrink back from the righteousness of God, to avoid the righteousness of God. Maybe to find a church that doesn't talk very much about the righteousness of God. To go to a place that's a little more comfortable where you don't have to encounter a God who has a moral standard for human beings that we fall short of. But listen, if you do that, you'll never discover the hope of the righteousness of God. Because remember what I said a minute ago, the righteousness of God is a threat to God's people and it's the hope of God's people. And the glory of the gospel is that you've got to see both. Only by encountering the threatening nature of the righteousness of God can you really begin to see how it's also the hope of God's people. So we've seen the threat of God's righteousness. You've seen these passages in the prophets where God says to his people, I'm coming against you. So let's look now at the hope of the righteousness of God. And to do that, I want to go to that passage you heard read right at the beginning, Psalm 143. So let's turn there. If you have a, one of the Bibles under your seat, it's page 490 in that Bible. I am not going to have the text for Psalm 143 on the screen because it's also why I don't have a laser, okay? We're going to go old school and uh, go tactile and uh, non-technological, all right? Psalm 143. I want to read again the whole Psalm. It's not very long. And I want you to listen and pay attention for the themes of righteousness. Listen to the word righteousness. Notice where it exists and what it says about righteousness. Psalm 143, a Psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. In this psalm, we see two things that should fascinate you. One, we see a person who is aware of his own unrighteousness. Do you notice verse 2? Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. We see a psalmist who's very in touch with his own unrighteousness, the ways he falls short, and the fact that if God were to enter into judgment with him, there's no one living who could stand before God in judgment. And yet at the same time, this psalmist appeals to the righteousness of God as his hope for deliverance and rescue. Verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So for the psalmist, the righteousness of God is not a threat. He's not saying, God, because no one living is righteous before you, i got to stay away from you. What he's saying is, though no one living is righteous in your sight, in your righteousness, God, deliver me. Hear my cry for mercy. Do you see in this psalm, the righteousness of God is the hope of his people. This is a psalmist hoping in the righteousness of God, saying, God, because you are righteous, hear my cry, hear my plea, deliver me, set me free. Why is God's righteousness the hope of his people? Well, for two reasons. Here's the first. Because God is righteous, he sees your integrity. Because God is righteous, he sees your integrity. Here's what I know about you. I know that you're a sinner. I know that you sit here this morning aware of all kinds of places in your life where you're falling short and not measuring up to God's standard. In fact, because you guys have really good theology, I know that you know that actually sin permeates and corrupts every area of your life. It's not like part of you is sinful and part of you is good. You know that sin affects your whole being. So I know that you sit here this morning aware of the corruption of sin present in you. But I also know this. I know there are probably times in your life when you have done the right thing because you fear God. Probably there's been a time in your life when you've borne the pain of someone else's insults against you or their anger against you without retaliating because you fear God. There's probably a time in your life when you've forgiven someone who's wronged you when they're not even asking or even apologizing yet. But you've sought to forgive people who've wronged you. Why? Because you fear the Lord. And because you know that's how Christ has forgiven you. Some of you students who are here, you've probably at some point in your life taken a stand in the locker room or at the lunch table when the conversation turned in a direction that was dishonoring to Christ or to people. Maybe you faithfully pursued someone who's turned away and wants nothing to do with you or with God, but you're faithfully trying to pursue them and engage them because you fear the Lord and you love them. Maybe there's a time in your life when you've been faithful in a difficult situation, in a conflict, in an argument, maybe even in a difficult marriage or a difficult job situation, you've just tried to faithfully honor the Lord in the midst of hardship because you fear God. Friends, because God is righteous, he sees your integrity. He sees the world justly. He sees things as they actually are, and that's a cause for hope. Because it means your little acts of obedience matter. They don't go unnoticed. They don't go unaccounted for. God sees and is pleased with your righteousness. Even when no one else sees, God sees. And that's good news. That's hope in a world where sometimes when you do the right thing, it feels like nobody's looking, nobody cares, and nobody thinks it matters. It matters to God. He sees your integrity. That's one reason why God's righteousness is the hope of his people. This psalmist is saying, God, you know I'm not righteous, but you also see. That I'm hoping you, that I'm trusting you, that I'm pleading with you. I'm writing this song because I'm praying and crying out to you. God's righteousness is the hope of his people because he sees their integrity. But also, and more importantly, God's righteousness is the hope of his people. Because his righteousness means he will be faithful to his promises. God's righteousness means he will be faithful to his promises. Listen, in his love and goodness and grace, God has bound himself to a people. God showed up to a man named Abraham and said, I will bless you and make your name great. And through you, I'll bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. God showed up to his people under Moses and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. In other words, this God who is righteous, who is holy, who is beyond us, who is the standard in the universe for rightness and goodness, has bound himself and committed himself to a people. And that means he will be faithful to his promises, and that's your hope and mine. Your hope and mine is not in our righteousness, in our goodness. In our moral conformity, your hope and mine is the fact that God will be faithful to His promises. And I want you to notice the psalmist in Psalm 143 is saying two things. He's saying, "Don't enter enter into judgment with me, God, because in your eyes no one living is righteous. I know I'm a sinner. I know I fall short of your standard. Yet also, I'm hoping in you. You're my refuge." You're the one I'm trusting in. You've promised to deliver a people, and I'm one of those people, and so you have to deliver me because you're righteous and good. That's what he's saying. Your righteousness means I can't stand before you, but your people have to stand before you because you've made promises to them. So, God, in your righteousness, will you hear my prayer and deliver me? Friends, I hope you can see this is, just, this is the posture of a Christian the posture of a Christian, the thing the gospel invites us to is to hold these two things at the same time. God, don't enter into judgment with me because in your sight, no one living is righteous. I know I don't measure up. Yet also in your righteousness, hear my plea for mercy, deliver me, preserve my life, deliver my soul from its enemies. Friends, God answers that plea through the gift of his son. The righteous one. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who comes to deliver us from our unrighteousness. To save us from the enemies of our soul. And to fulfill God's great promises to his people. We're going to talk more specifically and explicitly. About the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. In weeks to come. But Today what I want you to hear is that the righteousness of God is a threat to his people and it's the hope of his people. Because the righteousness of God means God will be faithful to his covenant. And that's our hope. And so it's fitting that we close this morning with these words from the prophet Jeremiah. So hear these words from God. Hear this promise from God that he makes to his people. our righteousness. And that, friends, is our hope. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you this morning that you are a righteous God. And we praise you that you are our righteousness. Thank you that in your righteousness, you hold everyone to the same standard. And thank you that in your righteousness, you are faithful to your promises and committed to your people. And so we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be our righteousness. And we ask this morning that you would open our eyes more fully to the glory of your righteousness, to the beauty of your righteousness. Would you help us love you more deeply because you are righteous? Would you help us fear you more fully because you are righteous? Would you help us worship you more deeply because you are righteous? And thank you that you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ as our righteousness. And so even now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, would you help us come in the humility of Psalm 143, acknowledging that none of us in this room are righteous before you. And yet in your righteousness, you have brought our souls out of trouble in and through the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your goodness and grace to us in him. Amen.